How's it going, everybody? Ryan here from the Break the Business podcast for episode 131. While the show is on hiatus, we're going to be playing some of my favorite interviews that we've done since 2015 on the podcast, and we got a couple great ones here for you this week. Our episode 99 guest interview, Cheryl B. Engelhart, is going to be coming up on this episode. She's a fantastic New York-based singer-songwriter, great music industry mentor, a lot of great resources that's on her website, in thekeyofsuccess.com. After you're done listening to her, I highly recommend checking some of those resources out to help you move your career forward. In this interview, she's going to talk about artist branding. After we're done with Cheryl, we're going to be hearing from our episode 111 interview, Holly Mayer, a great, great indie artist from Nashville. She works with an organization called the Other Nashville Society, and she's going to talk about her work with that organization. And she's also going to give you guys some great tips on music licensing. So if you're looking to find synchronization opportunities for your music, you're going to learn a lot from that interview. Two great interviews coming at you right now. Don't go anywhere. Keep listening to the Break the Business podcast. Ryan here from the podcast. Shameless plug time, my new book, Break the Business, Declaring Your Independence and Achieving True Success in the Music Industry, is now available in paperback and an ebook. The book talks about how you can be your own boss in your music career and take control of your content creation, promotion, distribution, and fundraising. Get your copy on Amazon by searching Break the Business. It's a nice read for musicians and the people who love them. That's Break the Business, Declaring Your Independence and Achieving True Success in the Music Industry. Thanks very much for your support. Welcome back to the Break the Business podcast. She is a New York-based singer-songwriter and music business coach who recently spoke at CD Baby's DIY Musician Conference about artist branding. She provides a wide variety of educational resources for musicians at her website, inthekeyofsuccess.com, and you can find her music at cbemusic.com. Ladies and gentlemen, we're happy to welcome back Cheryl B. Engelhart on the Break the Business podcast. Cheryl, great to hear from you again. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah. Uh, we last had you on the show almost exactly a year ago in September. Wow. And it, it's I know. almost to the day. And <laughs> on that show, you gave some terrific advice on overcoming career plateaus. We really very much appreciated that. And now I'm just sort of curious, how have things been going for you since we last chatted? What's been going on in your world? Oh, man. So much stuff. Thanks for asking. Um, I think the, you know, the beginning of this year, I spent a lot of time sort of tightening up some of the resources I had been producing for musicians. I got some great feedback over the past two years and um, tried to, you know, I moved some of my courses over to a new platform that I'm really excited about. So I, I sort of had the business hat on for a little bit, trying to trying to do that sort of thing. Um, in the meantime, I've been working with a couple producers and got signed to a licensing company, specifically working on writing music for commercials. So, you know, that was another, that was like the creative hat that sort of started happening like mid February. So I took that, um, you know, create the creative juices and sort of put them in that, you know, put all my eggs in that basket, so to speak creatively. And then, uh, this, this summer, I actually just returned from a trip to the Middle East where I was singing with a choral group that I'm in. Um, they actually debuted a piece of mine, which was really, really neat. And we were singing all over Israel and Palestine and the West Bank and and working with some choral groups and children's choirs and things over there and sort of opening up some conversations. It was a really, really interesting trip. And now I'm writing more for them. So I'm, I literally was just 
playing some choral music I was writing. So it's a kind of a lot of stuff, but all in all, it feels really well balanced. And it was really fun to be in Nashville for the CD Baby conference and um, get to talk about all this stuff and how how it applies to branding and your website organization and all that stuff. So, so a lot of downtime for you, it sounds like. Sorry, say that again. So a lot of downtime for you, it sounds like. Just taking it easy. Yeah, Got pretty it. much. I, I mean, I, I don't know how I do it, but I get a lot of Netflix time, and I'm, I'm telling you. Okay. Well, well, all right. Now I got to know what, what's what's on the Netflix queue right now. What are you binging? I have to say that it might actually be Hulu. I say Netflix because it feels a little more, but in the world of Hulu, I've kind of got into This Is Us. I know I'm behind the times on that train. Um, I'm definitely a fan of the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt that is on Netflix. Oh, that's fabulous. <laughs> and uh, on Hulu, Casual, also a big fan of Casual. So those are my, those yeah. are the ones I'm, I'm kind of watching now. I have a couple of guilty pleasures, but you'll never know them. You'll have to pry them out of me. Oh, oh, good. Oh, see, like I have all these questions for you about branding, but all right. You know what? <laughs> I, I can see that you're not just going to offer up what these guilty pleasures are. Right. Um, but if... If throughout the interview, if I guess them. <laughs> yes, I'll. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, I mean, can you give me a clue? Because I, I kind of want to know, like, what universe of, of shows should we be looking at here in terms of your guilty nope. pleasures? Damn. Damn. Um, ooh, <laughs> shoot. That's going to be tough. I mean, that's going to be just, oh, all right. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ruminate on that. I'm going to think about that. But you, you have to pretend you're a songwriter in the sense that you have to create something from nothing. <laughs> beautiful all right um so last <laughs> week uh you, you you hinted on this but you spoke at the D, uh, diy musician conference sponsored by cd baby in nashville you gave a talk on artist branding and your timing is impeccable because this show has been on an artist branding kick lately and so oh. we're glad to have you on to keep that conversation going in fact just last week we spoke with berkeley professor of music and music business department vice chair tanya butler who taught us that branding is more than just your literal brand, you know, your trademark. Here's what she said in the clip so you can hear it, Cheryl. It's actually pretty interesting. Sure. I think musicians are branding themselves all the time. Just like I tell my students, when you don't come to class, when you don't turn in an assignment, when you're late all the time, when you're talking in the back of the room when the professor is instructing, you are branding yourself. You are burning an image or a perception in my mind of what's important to you. Musicians do it all the time. When they don't reach out and build a relationship with their fans, when they um, put together an entire album, let's say, worth of songs, without testing the market. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, it sounds like during your talk, and she, by the way, she's a hoot. Uh, you should go yeah, back and listen to that interview awesome. if you didn't. She is the best. <laughs> Um, I kind of told her she should have her own podcast, but I'm kind of afraid if she does, cause she'll just steal my audience completely. She's so fantastic. But, um, during your talk at the CD baby conference, it sounds like you must've taken a similar approach to branding in a way. Cause you spoke about how branding is a general tool for artists to help them boost their career. Uh, how so? Well, I mean, she sort of said the, the key thing that she said is, is you're letting, or now I'm paraphrasing, you're letting me know what is important to you. And my whole thing is your branding should convey what is most important to you. What do you want a fan to do when they land on your website? What do you want? What do you want us to think? What do you want the experience of your music to be for someone else? So I, 
I think she's she's dead on. I mean, my talk was actually about authentic branding and I didn't get into too much of the like and I also agree with her that it's not just your logos and your colors and your you know, your fonts and things like that. That is a part of it and that should represent your bigger picture. But the conversation I got into was a little more like who are you? And mm-hmm. why does why why do you matter? And why I actually started the whole the whole thing with asserting that you musicians and I can only say this because I was one of them am one of them are not saying anything that matters. Period. End of story. Mm. And we are so focused on promoting, promoting, promoting. How can someone help me? How can you help me? How can you help me? Sell, sell, sell. Like one of the a variation of one of those things, right? That that is what we're throwing out there, and it's not branding, it's not messaging, it's not communicating, it's definitely not relationship building. But shifting that promotion to connection is sort of where we want the branding to actually land and why we want to have branding because branding is part of your story, which is another thing we heard a ton of in the CD baby conference. A lot of people saying you need to tell your story, you need to tell your story. And I actually took a survey of the audience There are 250 people there and everyone knew that they needed a story. That was the first question. Who here knows you need a story, not just a bio, not like a list, a resume, right? Not like I played the guitar and then I was in this band and then I was in, and then, and then, and then, but really like a story as in something that captivates someone else so that they can connect with you and hear something of themselves in it. And my second part of that, that survey I took of the audience was who here has no idea where to start in terms of telling your story. Like we don't know what is interesting about ourselves generally, like I used to scuba dive for the government and I told this story too. So anyone that's listening and heard this, hopefully I won't regurgitate my whole talk, but I used to that was my first job out of college. I was a bio major and a music major. I double majored. And when I tell people like, yeah, I had a scuba diving job, I stopped it because I was bored. So when I say I had a scuba diving job for the government, I get bored. But (laughs) when I say that people are like, what? That is amazing. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Is that, that's, that's interesting to you. So I started to see, and I heard this, this great piece of advice, your story should be Really focus on three, two to five, three is my, my happy number, transitions that you went through mm. in your life. So the moment I decided I didn't want to do science, I wanted to do music. That's interesting. What's the story around that transition? Oh, I was scuba diving. <laughs> I got bored. And then I landed a job in an ad agency in the city. So in New York City, I say the city. But um, that that's a transition that's really key. Like we all started playing music at some point. We all did this, we all did this, but like, why did you decide to go from not doing that to doing that or living somewhere to living somewhere else? The motivation behind why you made that decision is usually the thing that's most interesting. So, um, I'm, I'm digressing to the story part of the brand, but the whole, the whole brand is, is designed to connect with someone. And I, I asserted in my talk and and continue to assert that, we are focused on when we're, you know, musicians are so concerned with how to make money and to get the music out there, which is a concern. Like we we're making music for a reason. So of right. course we want it out there, but I think we sort of get a little bit of tunnel vision and we forget that the people that are going to help share the music and buy the music are the people that connect with us. And that's, that's the point of the brand to sort of put everything out there, the colors, the fonts, all that stuff will, will create the picture, the experience of who you are as a human being, what you're committed to, what you're up to and the way you organize your website. And then of course the text and copy and what you're actually saying will lead people to, you know, understand who you are and therefore want to connect with you. 
versus you demanding that they buy something. <laughs> so I, I'm totally aligned with what the clip we just heard. Um, and I sort of got a little deeper, like a little more personal um, in, in my talk. And I pulled some people up on stage and talked about their you know, default way of being. What are you really committed to versus how do you sort of act by default and how is that keeping you small? Um, so we sort of dug into that that realm, so to speak. All right. Is the Guilty Pleasure show Pretty huh? Little Liars? Oh, yeah. Well, no, I wouldn't say that. No. I watched that show. I like no. that show. And the re here's the funny thing. The reason I watched that show is because it was after um, Switched at Birth for a while. Like mm -hmm. it, on ABC Family, it played right after Switched at Birth. And I had a song on a, on a Switched at Birth promo for episode one of a, of a new, I think it was season two. So I was like, oh, I have to... I found out I got my music on Switch at Birth, so I watched the episode, and I was like, oh, I don't mind the show, and I just kept the TV on. I don't know what I was doing, but and I watched Pretty Little Liars, and I got hooked. Hardcore. <laughs> so, so I actually wouldn't even call that, a, I mean, it's probably a guilty pleasure, but that's not the one I was thinking Oh, but what you're saying is we're not digging deep enough. This is just pleasure for you. Like, we have we have to get into, like, yeah. the darker reaches of television to find Cheryl B. and Girls Heart's <laughs> guilty pleasure. All right, all right. We're going to send yeah. it. We're sending the team back to the lab now. We're going to get a couple more for you by the end of this interview. Were you even listening? I was just saying some golden shit right there, and you are so focused on my TV watching habits. I hope... I hope you listeners are better than our host here. No, com come on. No, completely right. I was writing down TV <laughs> shows the whole time. No, no, no. This is it's, it's actually <laughs> I'm your, totally kidding. your insight was terrific. And in the, in the last two weeks, what we've been able to uh, ascertain from our foray into branding is um, what is branding other than just, you know, what I see it as a lawyer, which is just your literal brand that you register at the trademark office. And right. whereas right. Professor Butler was talking about how your brand is defined by your actions and how people perceive you because of those actions, your, your, the, the steps you take day to day, you Cheryl came in and say that, you know, branding is also a product of the story that you tell others and particularly these pivotal transition mm -hmm. events and it's also important to kind of keep your brand unified so that whether it's on your website or with your music or whatever it is that you're kind of projecting a single brand so that consumers aren't confused see i was totally yeah. paying attention while writing down tv yeah, that shows was beautiful i love that you're totally that's impressive actually so <laughs> yeah so that's really great and and this is cool that these podcasts are really giving a, a full picture because i think that the actions your actions represent your brand as well i think that's brilliant and i think that's completely in line with um all you as a musician, everything you do say, put out there, like completely is, is a brand. It's, it's really true. So I love that. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, I think the most important aspect of all of this that we don't want to lose sight of is, is the show a kid's show like my little pony? Oh my God. No. Damn. Damn. All right. All right. I'm going to get, <laughs> all right. Okay. Um, well, how was the how was the DIY musician conference overall? Because regrettably, I wasn't able to make it this year, and it broke my heart. But what were some of the best things that you got out of the conference this year? Because I'm sure you weren't just going as a speaker; you were going as just a, an attendee as well, trying to learn some things. I always go to panels. I, I'm one of the I think one of the fewer panelists I see around that actually go to other people's panels. Because I'm like, I'm this is great. I'm taking advantage of being here and listening to listening to stuff. Um, I loved hearing. Um, Oh, what is it? Charles Alexander on Spotify. Really great talk about just making playlists and you just utilizing Spotify as a tool to, to get your music out there and, and the importance of streaming and that not only fans are there looking for music, but music supervisors. And yeah, like, it's just, it's, that was really valuable. Um, 
I'm trying to think. Uh, I saw there was so much. There's so much stuff going on there. It was it was great. Um, Suzanne Polinsky talked about sort of wellness as a musician, and and I think that wellness playing into your brand was another different interesting angle, and how to sort of the time management conversation is something that. You know, there. She says, "Stop the sleep shaming." Like people like to brag about how they only got two hours of sleep last night because they were working so hard and so long and were so busy. <laughs> but it's like, yeah, you're just not working effectively. So we want, she was trying to like flip that on it, and I love that. You know, flipping that, you know, sleep bragging thing into <laughs> don't shame the people that actually get sleep and are able to like take care of themselves. I think there is something of value to that, for sure. Um, no question. I did. Sorry. I said, no question. Um, as, yeah, a, as a so big I, fan I, of sleep I, that I, I am. Like, <laughs> yeah. I liked that a lot. And I thought that was, it was great. It made me feel better about going to bed a little earlier than I think the average person there was going to sleep. <laughs> um, yeah, it was, it was a really good time. It was nice to, I mean, I think the cool thing about the CD baby conference is that you really get to rub shoulders with everyone that's there. Not panelists don't run off into green rooms. You can kind of like see everyone out and about that night, you know, every night. And, um, you can talk to the people at CD Baby. They're like everyone just seems really accessible. So that was that was really great. Well, you were certainly a great example of that accessibility at the conference because you didn't just give your talk and run away. You actually gave mentoring sessions at the conference uh, with uh, folks I like did. Ari Hurston, who is one of my favorite people out there. Uh, can <laughs> you? Can you sort of give us uh, maybe one or two of the mentoring nuggets that maybe you gave out during some of those one-on-one sessions? Yeah. I mean, people signed up with me. I guess I was categorized as a branding person. Um, so I got a lot more questions about like websites and, and, you know, a really great question that I got and that I, I get a lot from people is like, I have a band, but I'm also a solo artist or I'm a producer, but I also am a songwriter. So should I have two websites? Um, or how do I like brand the two different things I do? And I, my answer to that question, and, and I've heard a, a variety of different answers to this question, but I, I only answer from my own experience, which I, I used to have a composing website and a song songwriter website, and then the resources for musicians website. And I realized that that was a lot of websites to manage and it's, and to have three different brands when they're really all all me, um, felt really confusing. I felt like I was in an identity crisis. So my advice is always to say, just make one website with your name, or, um, if you're a band name, have it the band name and then have a link to just you as the project. And then the tabs in your website are sort of like the categories of what you do. I like to think of them as, as bins. If you play tennis, you know, you have all these balls all over the place and then you have the hoppers that you can like squeeze the balls into. And then you have these, all these bins full of tennis balls. So I like to think of the tennis balls as each individual thing that you do. So if you are, if you produce artists, if you mix for the artists, if you songwrite, um, if you're a singer, if you tour, those are all balls, right? And they can fit into bigger categories of bins. And those bins usually end up being the tabs on your website. And like Ari says in his book, don't be afraid of the dash, like producer slash writer slash songwriter. Especially in this industry where yeah. most creators today have to be more than one thing uh, to, you know, you, you can't afford to really specialize as much as you used to 20 years ago. Yeah. And I think, I, well, here's the thing about that. The, I think it's a little bit disempowering to think that I have to do these three things because I can't afford to only do one. So for me, mm -hmm. I am a singer, songwriter, composer, 
and career coach or whatever you want to call the musician resources that I create, like the courses that I run. So those are, those are three very different hats. Like when I'm film composing, I'm doing very different things than when I'm songwriting or performing. They're very different things than when I'm creating a course or hosting a course. Right. So I have these three hats, but I got to a place where I was able to do the composing thing and make, I was making more of a full-time living from composing than songwriting or the courses. And now I'm doing, focusing on the courses. And so that's sort of helped. So now it's like, I don't want to only do one. I get bored really easily. So like for me, my, my big thing, and I, and I said this also in my talk is that you want it you want your career to be by your design, not by necessity. Cause when any of those things are by necessity, they, they, you start to resent them. So if you are making money as a producer, but you really want to be songwriting, like if you're getting producing gigs and you enjoy it, great, focus on that. Keep doing what's working so that you can be financially responsible. Cause that's, that's an important thing. Like you don't, you want to be able to pay your bills, but if you don't love the producing and you could make more money being a bartender and that you're psyched about that too, then like, don't be like, Oh, I have to hold myself to this thing. I said I would do like, okay, whatever, go be a bartender and then write songs in the day and be psyched. You know, do you- so I think that whatever you're, <laughs> whatever you like to do should be the slash. And if one is going to help the other. So if you're producing and you know that a lot of people are going to start coming in with no songs written or half songs written and you're like, Oh, Hey, I can bring in my songwriting skills into this production client that I have. Then there's a way to tie them together and one elevates the other. So when I get successes as a songwriter, that gives me more fuel to maybe create a different course or say, Hey, look what worked for me. Let me share this process with you. So that will help my courses. If I get a composing job that takes up a lot of my time, but pays really well, then I'll have a couple extra months to do some songwriting that won't pay right up front. You know, like it, it's this balance and it's a dance between the things that you love to do. So I just, my thing is don't look at it. Like I have to do this or I'm, I'm forced to because of the money. I know a lot of people do make a living doing multiple things and having multiple streams of income. But I think those people are also the ones that enjoy doing multiple things and might get bored or need different sources of creativity to inspire them. So I just, I kind of like to frame it in a little bit more empowering way than like, Oh, I have to do this to make money. So, so you find that for you and your personal experience, um, just wearing these different hats, they, they, it creates synergies for you. It, it creates gains, yeah. you know, doing, doing the teaching stuff creates gains for you in your singing career that you wouldn't have otherwise had. Um, but can it, is, is it sort of the other, like, w- but what do you do to sort of prevent conflict between the two things? Cause I imagine there's gotta be some time management difficulties. Yeah, I'm, I look at my, so each of those three things have a different color in my calendar and every Sunday at six 30 in my calendar, I take a half an hour and I schedule my week. So what I put in my schedule is stuff that's going to make a difference for me. Like I know that I need to follow up and write this one email to this music supervisor, or I know I need to spend four hours writing out the sheet music or the charts for my band because I have rehearsal next week or things that need to get done that I know will, will have me be in a different place next week when I come back to, to reschedule. So I'm not writing things like spend eight hours putting flyers up around town that don't make a difference, right? Don't do that because don't do that. Um, <laughs> or I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not writing, spend four hours scrolling through Facebook. Like th- those are things that are not getting into my calendar. So when I put something into my calendar, it gets done. Like I have a relationship with my calendar such that when I write something, I trust that it's something I know needs to get done. 
So that being said, I can look at my calendar and I can see, do I have balance this week? Do I see, I can just at a glance, I can see the three different colors. And if there's one too much, then I'm like, oh, I need to make sure I get in this project so that it doesn't get stagnant. So the time management thing is, is something that I'm really deliberate about. And, and if I'm, you know, if I'm working on a project or a deadline and I need to have, you know, shift the balance from all three equally to just, let's just say there's a composing project that I'm working on, then, then I know that and that's fine, but I'm, I'm looking out for it so that I don't get sick of one thing or, you know, but yeah, it's time, it's a time management thing. And, and it, and I also had to be okay with letting go that I, I had to work at all three at once. Like I don't necessarily need to do that. And, you know, this summer I was working hard on, on, or the early late spring, early summer, I was working on switching platforms for my, how I host my courses. And I didn't get one inquiry for a composing job. And I usually get three to four a month. And I literally for four months straight, I got zero inquiry. So it's kind of like I was telling the universe, like, hold on, let me do this right. <laughs> and focus and put pretty much a hundred percent of my time into this. And I think that that had me finish it in a timely manner and had me finish it well and like do it in a way that, that worked for me. So I'm sort of going back and forth, but ultimately I think, yes, schedule it and be deliberate about how you want it to go so that you can, you know what you need in terms of how you work. Everyone works really differently. So in this particular moment, it seemed like for me, I really needed to focus on, on getting the tech and the course platform stuff handled before I dove into anything creative, which is is fine. Yeah. That's truly excellent time management advice. I, I like the idea of, of creators, you know, starting the beginning of the week, taking inventory of where things are and really being deliberate about how you plan things out. On another note, is The Guilty Pleasure a sci-fi show like a Star Trek or a Babylon 5? Oh, my God. Damn. <laughs> um, it, it, uh, it, it truly is a great time management advice, and um, I, I really like the way you're setting it up. And I think you have to do it that way if you're really going to have these different career dimensions like you do. And in that same vein, um, I'd love for you to put your Coach Englehart hat on mm-hmm. now. And uh, sure. talk to you a bit about some of the terrific tools you offer artists at InTheKeyOfSuccess.com, including a free resource uh, that you offer on your site about mastering the perfect pitch to help artists get more revenue-generating gigs and sync placements for themselves. Can you give us a taste of some of the guidance you offer there? What goes into a perfect pitch? Yeah, I mean, pitching is it's communication, right? And so a lot of times artists, and I used to do this, and I would notice that not only would I get knows from people. Like I'd send an email and be like, how would you do that? I would just not hear anything. Like I was the queen of crickets. Like it was just <laughs> like no responses. So I, I actually got really dorky about it. And I was like, okay, what's going on? So I did all this research, like marketing research and how to send the right email and pitch an email. So I ended up doing an experiment of sending out a hundred emails, um, to a variety of things. I was trying to book a two week tour. And so it was venues. It was press outlets. Um, it was college radio stations. And so I had a hundred, which is not actually a lot of contacts considering, you know, there's, you know, five or six different press outlets in any one gig. And then you, you're reaching out to three or four different venues per gig. So if you're trying to do 10 dates, that's like 10 emails per date. So I sent out these emails, trying out some new, new techniques and how to pitch. And I started to figure it out. I started to get responses. Um, follow-up was really important, but I realized that most of the emails I was sending, I, I really wanted to tell them my story. And that story is really about connecting with your fans. 
And if someone, if a booking agent or a promoter for a venue wants you to fill their venue on a Tuesday night and bring people like they're not going to give a crap about your story if you can do that. So it became more about solving a problem for someone else and not listing all the stuff that you're so great about and, you know, all that jazz. So yeah, I have a pet. I could dork out on pitching forever because I, (laughs) I get so many emails from musicians that are like, like even after CD baby weekend, I got an email that was like, Hey, it was so nice to meet you. I'd love to take you to coffee. This is all the stuff about me. Like, you know, coffee, check out my website. It would be so nice to go to coffee. And like, there was no request. There was no, and I'm like, like, it's just so disempowering. And it's just so, it's just so ordinary. So if you really want to come across like you're extraordinary, then you need to get your pitching. Like you need to clean that up now. So I have a free checklist that sort of digs into it. And I have, I have a very inexpensive course that has some email templates and that's called the perfect pitch. Um, the, the checklist is called prime your pitch. That's great. And I think that they are the responses I've gotten, like uh, about 700 people have done one or the other. And, and the, all the responses I get are like, oh, my God, this person got back to me. Oh, my God. And like people are like, and now we have to like do something, which is cool, because if someone says no to an email, great, you have to go send another one to a different person. You, there's something to do. If someone says yes to your request, then OK, now you have to follow up. You have to do the thing you ask them. For. You like there's always something to do. So it's kind of like don't make no mean anything and just start asking for whatever there is for you. Like whether you're trying to get a sync placement or a gig or find a bandmate or, you know, get a mix done, whatever it is, there's always stuff that we're asking for. And I feel like if you can do that powerfully, you'll just be unstoppable. No question. And I don't even know if, if this was intentional on your part, but you talked about a big part of this is telling your story in those pitches so it all seems to come back to branding in the end. It does. It does. Well, don't <laughs> tell your story in your pitch. No one wants to hear your story in the pitch. They just want to get, if you can solve their problem, great. So that's, that's the funny thing. The story is to connect. If, mm. Are you trying to connect with a venue booker? I mean, maybe if you want to build a relationship with them long-term, but initially, like, what do you actually want to have happen when you send that, when you press send on that email? So, you know, it's all about, and this is one of the things that, that you do in the perfect pitches before you even sit down to write the email, you figure out what your intention is. Like, what do you want to have happen? So a lot of people, if you're going to apply for a job, you're not going to write an email saying, hire me. You're going to say, I would love to get an interview or take you out to coffee or talk to you. Or like, there's something else that you want to have happen first. So you have to sort of break down, you know, what you want and be really clear about it so that they're really clear on what you want. And then they can answer appropriately. So it all sounds like real common sense, but until you see it in like a list form and how to actually like format the the email so that you get results like that I have tested and tried because this, it was like driving me bananas. Like, why are people not responding to me? Um, <laughs> it's, it's not, it's not common sense. Like it, it sort of is counterintuitive. You want to connect so badly to that person, but that's not actually what they need at the moment. And folks, you can find that resource and many, many other fantastic resources at Cheryl's website, inthekeyofsuccess.com. It's a fantastic, fantastic place on the web. Uh, Cheryl really knows this stuff, and it's the product of lots of experience and lots of trial and error, it sounds like, Mm -hmm. um, throughout her career. Yeah. Oh, Um, yeah. Cheryl, I imagine there's going to be people who want to keep the conversation going with you. Where can people find you? And and when I ask that question, what I would like you to lead with is how, tell the folks your awesome Twitter handle. (laughs) Oh my God. It's CBE. (laughs) Woo. That's it. Everywhere else I'm CBE music. So my website, Facebook, 
Instagram, all that stuff is CBE music. But I somehow, when I first started Twitter, I got CBE. And a lot of people think I'm an airport in Kentucky. A lot of people think I'm Chris Brown Entertainment. Not true. <laughs> um, I There's a cannabis something or other that I've been getting a lot of tweets about recently. So <laughs> there's that. Great. <laughs> like, did you just get in on day two of Twitter? <laughs> I, I, mu- I don't know. I'm waiting for someone to be like, I will pay you a million dollars for that. But no, no, no one's done that yet. No, give it time. Um, Cheryl, it's been a treat. Uh, thank you for uh, putting up with our craziness today. Uh, You're welcome. Do you have any last tips to share with the indie artist listeners out there to help them move their careers forward? Oh, so many, uh, like, honestly, like since I, since I sort of did this experiment with the pitching, um, take a look at the emails that you wish you got replies to and you didn't and read, read them over out loud. And if you're even like mildly, like, yeah, I get why they didn't, I get why they didn't respond. Just download this free checklist because I, I, I promise you it's going to make a difference. It's going to shift something. And it's not just because I want to have you download a free check. I don't get anything out of you downloading a free checklist, but <laughs> I, I, it's, it's really changed a lot of things for me and a lot of other artists. And I think it's, it's so, it's so important to, to be powerful when we ask for things. And I think that's not the default for musicians. I think we are tending to be like, I don't want to burden you or I'm doing a fan funding campaign. Like we're just so <laughs> scared to, to ask for stuff. And people are always free to say no. And I I think we forget that. And like, if you ask powerfully and they say no, no, and you leave them, um, you know, you're occurring, like you're powerful and you're giving them a choice and they can choose yes or no. And it's like, no big deal to you. Great. So I think that shifting that context around, around pitching or asking for things, or even just posting things like, instead of check out my my new video, like, Hey, would you watch this and share this with your friends? Like, why don't we do that more? Like, why do I see so much like billboard stuff where you're just like splattering the internet with stuff versus actually having a conversation and asking, asking for something with clarity. So that's my, that's my thing. I could go on about that forever, but I think it really will make a difference for a lot of people's careers if they sort of shift how they ask for stuff. That's a tremendous sage advice. Again, folks, the, the website for her many, many terrific artist development resources is in the key of success.com. And oh, by the way, she's a pretty fantastic artist in her own right. Check out her music at cbemusic.com. Cheryl B. Engelhardt, everybody. Cheryl, thank you so much for being on the show. Ryan here from the podcast. Shameless plug time. My new book, Break the Business, Declaring Your Independence and Achieving True Success in the Music Industry is now available in paperback and an ebook. The book talks about how you can be your own boss in your music career and take control of your content creation, promotion, distribution, and fundraising. Get your copy on Amazon by searching Break the Business. It's a nice read for musicians and the people who love them. That's Break the Business, declaring your independence and achieving true success in the music industry. Thanks very much for your support. Welcome back to the Break the Business podcast. She is a Nashville-based indie singer-songwriter who joins us on behalf of the Other Nashville Society, an organization dedicated to creating opportunities for Nashville's non-country music community, including its independent creators. You can find out more about their work by visiting theothernashvillesociety.com, and you can find out more about our guests' music by visiting www.hollymayer.com. That's Holly, H-O-L-E-Y, M-A-H-E-R.com. Ladies and gentlemen, Holly Mayer is on the Break the Business podcast. 
Hi hey, there. Hey, Holly. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Oh, I, I'm intrigued about everything you got going on, and I, I'm particularly intrigued when I heard about the other Nashville Society. I, and I will confess, I had not heard about this organization until it was brought to my attention. It was established yeah. earlier this year, and it seems to be dedicated to giving support to the non-country artists in Nashville. I've always wondered this. Can you give us an idea of how large the non-country music community is in that city? Is it a sizable group? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I, a lot of people outside of Nashville um, don't realize that we have really evolved into a city that's much, much larger than our original you know, roots in country music. Uh, and that's kind of what we're here to try to do, to um, expose this community, this other Nashville community um, of amazing pop and rock and singer-songwriter music. There's an amazing hip-hop scene here. There's all kinds of stuff. And um, a lot of people just still don't know that it's happening. So our job, we see it, uh, as we see it, is to kind of connect people within that community um, give people uh, like a social playground to meet one another and get things rolling and to just let people know, hey, man, like this is what's going on over here in Nashville. I love it. So what are some of the specific initiatives that the other Nashville Society does to kind of bring this community together and broadcast its existence to the outside world? Yeah. Um, so I kind of describe it as somewhere like between a social club and a trade organization, maybe. Um we do four um, big mixers a year, once a quarter, that are just kind of getting our members together uh, at a bar or a venue or something and just letting what intrinsically will happen in that room full of such talented people happen. Um, and then we also do um, a few talks. We call them tons talks, where we invite some amazing people in to come and speak about what they're up to in their careers and just tell their stories. So it's learning, it's socializing, um, and it's hopefully like kind of matchmaking between uh, industry professionals to get some really cool stuff going on. So if I'm going to be down with your organization's lingo, I got to go with tons, right? So we... yeah, that, that's, yeah, that is what we've been calling it, tons, the I other love national it. society. Okay, cool. So I'm going to, I'm going to go with that then. I, and I know tons has wanted to pay particular focus to helping out the indie artists of Nashville. Uh, mm -hmm. Would you say your work does a lot of, or does your organization do a lot of work to help out that community specifically? Absolutely. Um, I think that there are just a lot of us, um, myself included, uh, for the most part. I, I don't have a record label for my own music. I do um, mainly licensing. So I have um, a licensing company. Uh, and that is pretty much my entire team. It's me and the team at that company uh, handling my career. And so there are a lot of people in my in a situation similar to mine where our teams are are small or maybe their people are just starting out. We're doing really cool stuff in home studios, and it's all the the ball is entirely in our court, you know. Um, so I think that, yeah, anything we can do to support a music community here in Nashville would inherently support a lot of independent artists because we just happen to have a lot of those people floating around. That's true enough. And it's interesting you, you bring up that you're, you emphasize in your own music career a lot of licensing. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. Folks, if you don't know Holly, her music has been featured in a lot of different ad campaigns for some pretty prominent brands, including Ikea, Cheerios, and Nutella. And I know a lot of listeners out there are intrigued by this because 
um, they would also be similarly interested in pursuing those kind of opportunities and maybe basing mm-hmm. more of their own career around sync placements. So if artists ever come up to you and ask for tips on how to get their music into ad campaigns, uh, what would you tell them? Yeah, um, I get that question a lot. <laughs> um, I'm going to age myself a little bit here and tell you that my licensing company found me on MySpace. <laughs> what? A long time ago. Whoa. Whoa. Yes, 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 yes. Did, you, did, did your page like play your own music like when people went onto your page? Because I know back in the day, the, the all, all the MySpace pages had songs attached to them. Like the autoplay? Yes. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that it did. It was, uh, it was very <laughs> colorful, this page. Well, they had to be. That was sort of the rule. Yes, I was very proud of it. Yeah, you, you couldn't have a MySpace page unless, like, when people open your page, they immediately got a headache looking at it. Oh my God, it was it was a design <laughs> disaster. MySpace, <laughs> but, yeah. all right. Uh huh. So they um they I guess had been watching me um after college and um waiting to see what I would do. And after my first record came out, they um they sent me an email uh, and wanted to just get things started. So I I guess. I I always struggle with what to tell people to do here because a lot of the things just kind of fell into place for me. Um, But I worked really hard and I I studied um, the artists that were doing well in licensing uh, when I was writing my own music. Um, I've always known that I really wasn't built for the road. I'm not like a road warrior. I don't love to be uh, in the spotlight or traveling too much. And so being a musician, it's like, how do you even make a life for yourself if you're not um, built for that sort of thing. And uh, so when I discovered licensing, I realized that's where I wanted to be. And I've been shaping my career in that way um, since I very first started writing music. So did a lot of researching and listening to music that was successful and trying to figure out what um, people were doing in that realm that made it work. Gosh, that's a really important message for artists to hear, because I, I imagine there are a lot of artists out there who are like you, who don't you know, who, who, who don't love the live performances, who don't love the idea of having to be on the road, but love to create and think that they can create, you know, things that other people will enjoy. And I'm sure what they're hearing from you is that there's a way to make a living if that's the way you are. So when you write songs, it sounds like, you know, you know, cause I know a lot of artists who write for sync placements and for campaigns, they sort of just write music and then as an afterthought, it, oh, it just happened to be something that was good for an ad campaign. But it sounds like you at least devote some of your time to trying to figure out what these ad campaigns might want to hear and writing yeah. for them. That is absolutely correct. Some of my time, not all of it, because otherwise I think I would go crazy. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that's kind of what makes my licensing company Sorted Noise, uh, Sorted Noise, Um so different from other licensing companies out there is that rather than me creating music on my own without the involvement of my licensing company on the creation end and handing it over to them and saying, okay, show me what you can do with this, which is how many licensing companies operate. Um, we kind of work hand in hand from the beginning. So they'll give me a, a brief that they've seen come in from a television show and we can actually create custom music. And, um, you know, we're kind of working in the opposite direction than most other, um, musicians and licensing companies out there. And it's, it's been very, very helpful, um, to have like a a hand in hand relationship with companies like Ikea 
these, that's how I ended up getting those um, placements because they were able to hear my work tapes from the very beginning and have input. Um, So it's a, a very different way of going about things, but I think that's what makes us really special and successful. Gosh, that's interesting. What do you, as a songwriter, what would you say is easier for you? Is it easier to write like when you get a prompt from a, an ad company or is it easier for you to write like an original song that's just coming from a blank sheet of paper that you're writing yeah. for an album? <laughs> yeah, the, it, I would say, hmm, it kind <laughs> of de- yeah, it kind of just depends on my mood, I guess. Uh, there are certain days where starting from a blank sheet of paper is the most difficult thing ever. Um, and in general, I think it is easier to have um, a brief or at least some made up parameters. Um, I call it like, uh, trying to write a song without having any idea where you're going is like playing darts with the lights off. (laughs) You have absolutely no idea where the board is and you're just throwing things and hoping it sticks. Right. So for me, giving myself a brief, even a made up, um, assignment helps me to focus and shows me like where the target is. And it, just takes a lot of the decision making that I would normally make to makes, makes it, um, a little easier. There are only so many decisions that I can make. So it's a little narrower and easy to see where I'm going. Uh, playing darts with the light, lights off. I might have to steal that for my next book. That is uh, <laughs> well articulated and forgive me here for making you take a step back, but I'm just so intrigued yeah. by this. Can you walk yeah. me through a little bit more as to what it is that you do with your licensing company? Is this just a company that creates yeah. music? Do you actually work to creating relationships with these brands? Like where are you on the supply yeah. chain of all this? Cause this, I, I, I must confess, this isn't as something that I've heard artists do before. So this is kind of interesting right. to me. Yeah. I'm not sure that it's happening anywhere else to be honest, at least. And I've spent almost 10 years in the licensing industry and I know a very few people that do the things the way that we do. Um, well, not that I'm trying is, to create competition for you or anything, but I just think <laughs> this is fascinating. <laughs> no, I'm very proud of the way that we do things. Um, you know, if more people did it, it could only be better for everyone. Um, anyway, I'll try to explain. Uh, <laughs> it is kind of a long thing to understand. So most licensing companies, they, they sign, um, they song, they sign singer songwriters and they add their existing catalog to a library of music. And so when briefs come in from an ad, um, agency, or from a television show, they'll read that brief and they'll be like, all right, Vampire Diaries is looking for a sultry song for season four or whatever. And so they'll go through their catalog, see if anything exists, and they'll send everything that they think might work. Um, And that's kind of casting a super wide net. It's just like shooting with the lights off, you know what I mean? So that happens sometimes, and a song might be like just a hair wrong. Yeah. It doesn't quite fit. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the most heartbreaking thing. When someone says to you, Oh my God, the lyrics were so perfect for this, but the production was wrong or there were too many background vocals and you, you know, and it doesn't, you don't have that opportunity to change anything because it's moving so quickly and no one expects you to be able to change anything. That's just how things work. They take things that are done. Right. Um, so we at sorted noise wanted to go about this in a different way. And I was lucky enough to be one of the very first artists that they signed. And so I've been involved in their process step by step for a long time. And part of, you know, kind of ironing out the kinks in this plan, really. (laughs) Um, So instead of going in that direction, or I should say in addition to going in that direction, because we do um, pull from existing catalogs as well, 
we also spend a lot of time building relationships with individual um, music supervisors. Uh, that entails going to conferences and setting up meetings. And um, I just got back from a vacation in London where I sat down with a publishing company and explained all of this to them and uh, hopefully built a relationship with them. And uh, we just let people know that this is what we do and this is what we can do. And um, we keep our ears to the ground. And people will come to us when they realize that it's a possibility that um, we can create something fully custom for them. And that's what happened with Nutella and Ikea. And uh, we were able to be with them step by step through the entire process of the creation of those songs. Um, and it works so well that for the Ikea commercial, um, I had three songs, three original songs of mine end up in the top five choices out of thousands of songs that they listened to. Um, so that just shows you that the custom route must be working better than, uh, just like I say, throwing darts in a dark room. Sure. I'm just, you know, trying to find something that's already been created and sort of fitting it into the whole that is this music. Right. That's man. That's a really cool idea. Kudos to, to you guys. <laughs> that's, that's, that's fantastic. Um, all right. I think I'd be doing uh, tons, a bit of an injustice here if we didn't also <laughs> talk about them. Um, yeah. So, well, let me ask you this to kind of bring us back into tons, but, you know, through the lens of what you're doing. So you're an indie artist in Nashville and you are, you know, part of this other Nashville contingent that doesn't work in country primarily. Can you talk a little bit about what are the unique challenges that you've had as a non-country artist in Nashville in trying to make it in that city? And... Can you give us an example of some particular obstacles you've had to overcome? Sure. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I went to Belmont University here in Nashville, Tennessee. Great school. They, Great school. Yeah, wonderful school. Mike in Kirk fact, College I looked at your business. alma mater yeah. when I was looking at colleges. Um, University of Miami, am I right? That's right. Beautiful campus. Um, but ultimately, I fell in love with Belmont and ended up coming here. And this was back in the day when no one really understood what licensing was. Um the indie pop female singer-songwriter trend was just beginning. Uh, nobody had heard of Ingrid Michaelson. Although <laughs> I was, I, she blew my mind because I saw her very first, um, uh, what was it, Old Navy commercial where she did the sweater song. Yeah. Um, and I was blown away um, listening to a song that sounded like something could, like on the radio and not just a jingle. And that was the very first time I heard an original song on a, commercial that really affected me. So I was going to Belmont when no one knew about any of this stuff. So most of my courses, my vocal coaches, my vocal classes, um, they didn't really know what to do with me vocally. Um, I didn't have anyone who could teach me about licensing in my music business courses because the courses didn't exist. Um, I hope they exist now. <laughs> <laughs> if not, they can call me. Um, <laughs> nice. Yeah. So when I graduated, I had no idea. I knew what I wanted to do, but I had no idea how to do it. Um, no one had equipped me really with these tools. So um, I went and had a meeting at BMI uh, because everyone told me I needed to find myself a PRO and hopefully create a personal relationship with someone there. So that was my first mission um, to go to um, a woman. Her name is Beth Laird. And she's no longer there. She's uh, running a very successful publishing company with her husband, Luke, right now. Um, but at the time, she was my PRO, uh, A&R uh, lady in charge at BMI. 
And uh, so I went and met with her and she was the only person on staff there who had any experience in the indie pop world or knew anyone doing it. Um, so thankfully she was able to point me towards my producer and to give me a few pointers, but she was literally the only person in town who I could speak to about this. Um, and that everybody else is, was country or, well, yeah. Um, well just the, it, it, especially at that time was prevailingly the largest industry in, in the music, uh, sector of Nashville. Sure. Um, so people just didn't, um, have any connections outside of it. And that's why I think it, uh, tons is so important right now is that I want artists who are in or were in my, are in the position that I was in to have more support than I did, uh, when I was coming up and trying to figure things out in a very DIY fashion. That's something I really love to see. I always commend the artists who, you know, it's it's one thing to to achieve some success in the industry, but it's a whole other thing that once you achieve that success, to build the bridge for the people behind you to help them along the way. And so that's terrific. I commend you so much for that. So how can people, if they're in the Nashville area, become a member of Tons, and what are some of the benefits of membership? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you can visit our website, um, theothernashvillesociety.com, and you can fill out our membership form right there. It's very simple. Um, we just ask that everyone is involved in the music industry to a certain extent, um, and especially outside of country music. And our board looks over um, every application, and we want to make sure that the rooms that we're putting together are beneficial for everyone there so that when you walk into a tons event, you are really rubbing elbows with some of the coolest people in town who are doing some really amazing stuff. Um, not only established people who have achieved a lot already, but people who have a lot of really cool stuff going on and might be under the radar. Um, but wow, I love looking through these, um, applications and seeing the incredible music that is going to be, uh, coming out soon. And it's really exciting. Um, so yeah, the, the, the benefits of membership are really just being able to get in touch with people who are doing what you're doing. And like uh, you go to other, there are plenty of other social organizations in Nashville that do similar things. Um, but effectively they're going to be speaking 90% about country music. So when you come to one of our events, you're going to be hearing information that actually pertains to your career. Um, you're going to be listening to people who have walked a similar path that you're trying to set up for yourself. Um, we recently had a tons talk with, um, some pop singer songwriters from all over the country. Um, Jim Johnson and Brett McLaughlin, who just had an, an amazing, uh, hit with, um, why do I, is it Demi Lovato or Selena Gomez? I think it's Selena Gomez. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and Tommy English. Um, it was so amazing to listen to these people in the pop sector. And even myself as a pop um, singer-songwriter, I don't have a lot of opportunities to sit in front of that many people who have done such amazing things in my field. It's really, really special to go to an event like this and know that it's tailored to you. Um, so yeah, we're always really excited to have more people in that room. Awesome. It's a really electric. You can check it out by visiting the other Nashville and be sure of course, to check out all the great stuff that Holly Mayer is doing. That's H O L L E Y M A H E R.com. 
Holly, this has been a treat. Before we let you go, do you have any last tips that you can share with the indie artist listeners out there to help them move their careers forward? Absolutely. Um, I say research, research, research. Um, and you're sitting right here listening to this podcast. So obviously, you know what you're up to. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> the internet is an incredible tool. You don't necessarily even need a college degree. Sorry, Belmont, I said it. You can learn everything you need to know on Google. You can email people like me. You can sign up for organizations like Tons. And you can learn everything you need to know on your own and just kick. Oh, man, they're never going to let you give the commencement address now. No, they are not. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Holly, thank you so much for joining us. Don't be a stranger. We'd love to have you on again real soon. That would be great. Thank you, Ryan.